You're listening to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. In this episode, we're continuing a recent session from the University of Arizona College of Medicine, titled, Update in Cardiocerebral Resuscitation. Let's return now to presenter Dr. Gordon Yui from the University of Arizona. So in November 2003, we instituted cardiocerebral resuscitation here in Tucson. And of course, the question was, but don't you need rescue breathing? And the answer is, for untreated primary cardiac arrest, the oxygen arterial blood is fully oxygenated at the time of the arrest and will remain so for about 10 or 12 minutes. So if I were to collapse right now, I'm just breathing. My lungs would be full of air. Some people say hot air, but air. Pulmonary veins would be oxygenated. The entire left heart, the entire arterial system would be fully oxygenated. And if I were to lie here for 12 minutes and you then drew the arterial blood, it would be perfectly well oxygenated. It would be just like when I first collapsed, you put it in a test tube to take it to analyze it because it isn't going anywhere. So if it's not going anywhere, it's not going to be used up, and it's fully oxygenated. So to say that the first thing you have to do is mouth-to-mouth ventilation, it's absolutely ridiculous. In contrast, respiratory arrest, I can't imagine how stressful that would be. Can you imagine drowning and can't get any air, and your cardiac output is three, four, five times normal. The blood becomes black after three or four minutes. The pressure goes down, and... Five or six minutes later, you have cardiac arrest. Totally, totally different situation. So when we started this, you know, the question was, well, if we do this for everybody, you know, you may not be doing the right thing for people with respiratory arrest. What percentage of people have primary? And I didn't know, but uh, we asked Lonnie Clark, and she said she thought the majority in fact, she said it was way the majority. We now have data. In Arizona, 97% of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest are primary. Tom Ray in Washington, the 73% were cardiac artists. So somewhere between three-quarters of people with cardiac arrest are respiratory arrest. So we announced our intentions. We explained our rationale and we started this in 2003. So in 2005, again, we were disappointed when the guidelines did not endorse. But they changed the bystander from 2 to 15 to 230 based on consensus of experts. And this is the problem. Most of the changes are based on consensus of experts because they don't have any data to change the rules that were grandfathered in 50 years ago. So the guidelines are not always based on science. So because of that, we actually put in a grant to the Heart Association to test chest compression only versus 30 to 2 with a realistic 15-second interruption. Guess what? It was not funded. A good high-priority score, but not funded. But fortunately, through the Cyber Heart Center, where uh, people give us money to research, money to do what we think's best, rather than to send it off to national and let somebody else do it, why we did the study. 
And what we found is if you started the first two or three minutes, it didn't seem to make much difference. But if you waited to minute four, five, or six, which is usually about how long it takes to make the diagnosis, it made a big difference. 64% survival compression only versus 26% survival with a realistic uh, 30 to 2. So we published that, and Petter Steen, who's one of the authorities in resuscitation in uh, Europe, was asked to write the editorial. And he said, how realistic is the University of Arizona's realistic model of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest? Because gasping is common in their model, but rare in patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So we had to point out that Jill Clark, 20 years ago, listened to 445 phone call-ins of witness cardiac arrest, and the majority of individuals were gasping. Survival to discharge, 27% gasping, not gasping. We looked at the data here in Arizona, found about the same thing. So gasping is a sign of cardiac arrest. It's a indication of marginal but adequate perfusion to the brain stem. And if followed by defibrillation, you have good uh, outcomes. Mammals are the only species that gasp when we're born and gasp when we die. But if you start chest compressions, you will perfuse the brain stem enough that they will continue to gasp and you don't have to worry about assisted ventilation. As a matter of fact, last year, a 49-year-old man had cardiac arrest from a ST segment elevation myocardial infarction, chest compression only, performed by his wife for 26 minutes. Finally, uh, help arrived and did it for another four minutes. EMS arrived at 30 minutes, four shocks, ROSC 49 minutes, took him to the hospital, reopened his blocked coronary artery, and he survived uh, without any cerebral damage. In Arizona, we looked at uh, 481 patients reported by EMS to be gasping. And if somebody is doing bystander CPR and the patient's gasping, 39% survive, whereas if they're not, only 9% survive. So in our realistic animal model, what we find is that a couple minutes after uh, cardiac arrest, they'll gasp one or two times a minute, and it has this sort of classic crescendo-decrescendo pattern, and after five minutes, four or five minutes, they usually uh, stop. But it's a real problem. I think Carl had to testify at a malpractice suit. Uh, somebody collapsed up at ASU, and a physician was standing there and did nothing because the patient gasping for four to five minutes, and he thought they were breathing. So gasping is not normal respiration. It's a sign of cardiac arrest. So the importance of gasping in patients uh, must be emphasized because, I don't know about you, but in the old days when we started pressing on the chest and somebody would open their eyes, scare us to death, we'd stop pressing on the chest, you know. So you've got to know now that if you're doing good chest compression continuously, these people open their eyes, they'll have some purposeful movement, gluster glasses, that's great. That means you're getting enough pressure. So gasping is common and often delays recognition. So what happens 
If somebody has an unexpected collapse, they're non-responsive, you call 911, and, you know, you can't send out an ambulance for every old guy like me who falls down and can't get up. So they say, okay, is he breathing? And so they look over, and the guy's lying on the floor going, uh, uh. oh, yeah, he's breathing. Well, put him on his side so uh, he won't aspirate. And then, you know, four or five minutes later, you've lost the ball game. By that time, he stopped breathing, and they send the dispatch. So this agonal respiration has been described by various ways. Uh, again, we've heard people come in and say, gee, my husband was snoring last night, and I woke up this morning, and he was gone. But something that we have recently discovered and just published is not only do they gasp, they actually breathe normally for the first minute post-resuscitation. So any of the house staff is on the intensive care unit, and you are monitoring ventilation somebody, and somebody fibrillates, and you can show this, you've got a publication, because it's never been shown in man. But in animals, spontaneous breathing, pre-arrest, and then we fibrillate the pig, and they actually continue to breathe a normal infrared pattern, rather than a gasp, which is a So they actually breathe for a minute. So we have to add that to the mix. So then how do you tell if a patient's a primary arrest? It is anyone with an unexpected, witnessed, seen or heard, collapse in a person who is non-responsive. Don't say anything about the pulse, anything about the breathing. Shake and shout, are you okay? And if they're not responsive, 911 and start pressing on the chest. But it's also important to recognize that seizures is a very common manifestation. If you talk to the head of neurology, somebody comes in the hospital with a seizure, and they start doing these neurological workups, he'll say, wait a minute, first make sure it's not cardiac, because the majority are cardiac. So our community component recognition, call 911, compression only, CPR, as I said, we started this. In 2003, in uh, Tucson, we started 2004 statewide, and our goal was to have the best possible outcomes in Arizona. We just published the results last October. During 2005, 6, 7, 8, 9, 1,532 bystander CPR, 857 had compression only, 675 had conventional CPR. The incidence was 28% in 205, pretty close to the one in four nationwide, and we were a little disappointed that in spite of all of our efforts, it only increased to 40%. But of those who did bystander CPR, 20% did chest compression only in 205, and three-quarters, 76%, in 2009. So really, the public's made up their mind. If they're going to do it, all that increase it was due to chest compression only, CPR. And the important point is standard CPR, 17.7%, witnessed arrest, shockable rhythm, their compression only, 
7.7%. How about all out-of-hospital cardiac arrest? 7.8 versus 13. How about non-chockable? Are you doing harm? And the answer is it doesn't seem to. The fascinating thing to me is 30 years, 7.6, we had 7.8. 23 years, 17.7, we had 17.7. Just goes to show you that our data is extremely good. And then finally, this past year, the uh, Reader's Digest, that great medical journal, listed the 15 top medical breakthroughs, and they asked various people about that. Number one was compression-only CPR. So we felt pretty good about that. So we now have the 2010 AHA guidelines and the 2010 ILCOR. ILCOR is the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation. That's Europe and almost all of the rest of the world, Asia. And they looked at the data, and they came out with different recommendations. AHA says, hands only if you're untrained, and ILCOR said, 30 to 2 for all. And this is the official recommendation of the AHA guidelines, and they have hands only for chest compression, and we think that's a major step forward after 50 years of emphasizing rescue breathing. They finally said, if you're untrained or unwilling, do chest compression only. And this can be taught by video. But then they say you ought to get trained and learn to do it correctly, the 30 to do. But there is no data whatsoever that 30 to do improves survival in patients with cardiac arrest. In fact, the earlier study that I referred to, lay people, 16 seconds, you know, some of these people were old. They were in their 40s. So we said, how about young medical students? They take 14 seconds. We said, well, how about the professionals? How about the paramedics? They can do it in 10 seconds. Nobody can do it in four seconds. So in cardiac arrest, your hands or their heart, if you stop chest compression, their heart stops and blood flow to the brain stops. So do you want somebody blood flow to your brain stopped ever 10 to 12 seconds after ever 20 seconds of chest compression? I don't, so I still think they're wrong. So this recommendation also assumes that trained certified individuals will perform mouth-to-mouth ventilation, and Dr. Soar interviewed a group of people who witnessed a cardiac arrest who were certified, and hardly any of them did bystander CPR. And when asked why, none of them said that they didn't want to do mouth-to-mouth. Uh, I, I was afraid. I, uh, but if you ask people anonymously, physicians, instructors, internists, nurses, house staff, they'll all tell you they don't want to do mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. We'll return for more from this session of Grand Browns Nation after a short break. <laughs> 